Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, Gaggle listeners. It's Ron Hansen. And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. Each week on The Gaggle, we find pressing topics going on in politics and we parse out how it impacts you as an Arizonan. But this time, we wanted to turn the questions over to you. We asked our listeners to submit questions they have about Arizona politics so we can get a better idea on what you're curious about and find some answers that you may want to know. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republican AZCentral.com. Today, we're opening the mailbag. One of our producers, Amanda Liberto, selected five questions on topics that were submitted. Amanda, welcome. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming in. Let us have it. What uh, do the readers have on their minds? All right, here we go. Let's start with a question that was submitted to us via voicemail from John in Phoenix. He wanted to know more about education and specifically the funding cliff. Mary Jo, this is more your area of expertise, so why don't you kick us off? Ah, yes, the funding cliff. We hear that a lot when it comes to school finance. The current cliff that K-12 funding is facing is the pending expiration of Proposition 123. That was a voter-approved measure from 2016, where voters said, we're going to allow more money to come out of the state land trust and put it into public schools and universities. That worked out to about an extra $300 million a year in education funding, which has been a good thing. But that's going to stop at the end of 2025 when the measure hits its 10-year lifespan. Thus, we fall off the cliff. So far, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of hand-wringing about this cliff, but nothing's been formally proposed to do anything about it. You know, find a new revenue source or re-up Proposition 123. And if that doesn't happen, it could have big consequences. You know, as we know, the state's universal voucher program has grown very rapidly. We're about ready to go into another school year. We'll see if that rapid growth continues. What's concerning is that state tax revenues um, in the last two months have been on the downslope. May not last, but these are competing trend lines, more demand for universal vouchers, less revenue coming in. At some point, we may have to do something about that. And if the money from Prop 123 goes away and is not replaced, there's another issue that you have. I would look for some proposals in the coming legislative... Oh, wait, we're not even done with the current legislative session. (laughs) But when they get done and then come back in January, there might be some proposals, but I don't know where that's going to take us. We might be seeing divided government, you know, again, showing its uh, dysfunction, how we can't get anything done. So hang on. We'll see what happens as we get closer to that cliff. Do you think it's more likely that they'll re-up or more likely that they will come up with a completely different tactic? Re-upping would be easier. The downside, and there were a lot of arguments against Proposition 123, which didn't pass with a very big margin, 
because it takes away money in the longer term for education. So you're sort of spending today and at the expense of students down the road. Again, um, somebody's going to have to champion that. Last time it was Governor Doug Ducey. I do not have any sense if that's something that Governor Hobbs would want to take up. All right. Another topic that a lot of people wrote into us about is water. Of course, it is probably the most pressing subject in Arizona right now. Ron, what is the status of the Colorado River allocation that the Biden administration was going to set up and maybe the status of our water crisis at large? Yeah, so this really is kind of a biggie. And as we record this in the midst of an unprecedented string of hot days here in Phoenix, water is not far from anyone's mind. And and the viability of life in, in the desert is also something we should be thinking about. So earlier this year, the White House proposed basically evenly distributed cutbacks for the Colorado River shares. And that's something that I think was seen as kind of a break for Arizona because the historical formula had really kind of favored California as the state that was both large and first developed in the Southwest. And this sort of approach that would be more equitable for Arizonans for sure is something that I think is buying some time for Arizona, perhaps in terms of making the pain slightly less acute. But we're seeing other aspects of the water crisis sort of coming into full view as well. In June, for example, Governor Hobbs put into place a moratorium on home building in the Phoenix area because of a water shortage that is unsustainable as far as the eye can see. She is just acknowledging the the reality that the water supply does not pencil out for what we have and the people who are expected to continue to arrive in this state. We've seen utilities down in the Tucson area, for example, cutting back their water consumption. They have water they are permitted to use, but they have actually taken that down a few notches as well. We've seen others who are just trying to be more uh, conservationist in their, their personal efforts because they realize that Water is a scarce resource in this area, but we really haven't gotten our arms around the long-term solution, and and only part of that will come from uh, the White House and any kind of Colorado River allotments. We've seen groundwater, for example, remain a front-burner issue with the legislature. There is continued interest in trying to do something to stop something that I think has become the poster child for abuse in That is farming that is done by Saudi interests using our groundwater, even as others around rural parts of Arizona find that their wells have run dry. So the state is really sort of struggling, but we haven't gotten anything that feels like a comprehensive, durable solution for the water situation. I'll also throw in my conversations with Senator Mark Kelly, who really cares about environmentalism writ large and and certainly water in Arizona specifically, he's thinking about things that are really long-term expensive, but would be more in along the lines of trying to come up with something that would really put us on a fundamentally different footing with regard to water. And that is importing water from another part of the country, perhaps someplace like in the Northwest with the Columbia River being uh, directed in part where they have an excess of fresh water and we have a shortage of it. But these are 
mega expensive projects that are many, many years down the road. And there's also Governor Ducey was interested in trying to put down a down payment on research around desalination. That's an, an approach that also feels very expensive and probably inadequate to our needs. And there was very substantial question about its viability from the Mexicans who would have to agree to that. So we really don't have a long-term solution. That is the obvious part of this at this point. And in the interim, we're all just left to try and find our own personal virtues to try and waste little. As we enter an election year next year, do you think that water is going to be a topic that candidates will run on? That's a good question. I suspect this is something that will attract interest from Democrats to some limited extent. They'll want to talk about the need for water conservation, probably rolled up around the idea of dealing with climate change more broadly. Um, for Republicans, this has always been a problematic issue. There's a lot of folks that in my inbox and just in the Twitterverse that continue to be in denial about the very significant weather challenges that we are now facing, not just in Arizona, but we have our own manifestation of what this means that is pretty alarming right now to the tune of you know, record-setting string of 110-degree-plus weather. My guess is that you're going to see Democrats willing to engage somewhat on the subject and probably a lot of Republicans who will talk about this being part of historical weather patterns. So maybe a little lighter of a topic than the fact that we feel like we're on the sun all the time. Lucas from Phoenix reached out to us on Twitter, and he wanted to know why Arizona is one of the only states without a historic tax credit aimed to save historic buildings. Well, Lucas, there are some there are some benefits in Arizona for historic buildings. Not real generous, um, not real pricey. But for example, the state gives a property tax break for historic homes. You get 50% off of your tax bill, your total tax bill. So that's a pretty big savings. The intent there is that the homeowner would use the savings to you know, reinvest in their home. And the houses have to be owner-occupied. They can't be rentals. Um, they can't be used for a business purpose. And I'm not aware, though, of any similar kind of tax break for a business property from the state, although local governments put money into preservation. For example, Phoenix offers incentives to property owners who want to rehabilitate historic building exteriors or protect older warehouses that might be at risk of being demolished. And then we have the Arizona Heritage Fund that's funded by some of your lottery dollars. That money went away for quite a long time, but it came back thanks to the 2022 legislature. And they hand out some grants for historic building preservation. It's not real robust funding. For example, in 2022, it was about $750,000 to cover projects statewide. Not a lot of money, but there is there is some support out there. Anybody who's interested in historic preservation and money to support that should contact their local governments and then also take a look at the Arizona State Historic Preservation Office and the Arizona Heritage Fund to get some more information. Something that if you walk around downtown Phoenix specifically is easy to recognize is that there's so many apartment buildings that are being built. Do you think that these funds will help sort of 
stave off some of those and keep these historic buildings or is it way too hard to tell? <laughs> probably, probably not. I think the demand for housing, especially in the central city, and there's not a lot of protection for a historic building. If you want to tear it down, you have to give notice and you there might be a period of a year or so when you've got a, a delay is imposed. But I think the pressure for more housing is probably going to outweigh any sentimentality about um, historic buildings, even though they are part of our history here in Arizona. Yeah. And they're so beautiful. I love the historic neighborhoods just outside of the like downtown center of Phoenix. All right. So Dan from the Dine Nation asked us on Twitter, why representatives have the ability to not live in the districts that they represent and if that affects their chances at re-election. So this sort of has to do with redistricting. Ron, you're our resident redistricting expert. Why don't you take this one? Well, thanks, Dan, for the question. And this really does sort of remind me of why we did the episode we did a few months ago talking to the former heads of the independent redistricting commissions since we've gone to that system 30 years ago almost. You know, this really strikes at an issue that is bothersome to people wherever they go in politics. They just can't understand why do we have this partisan, whether it's somebody on the left or somebody on the right, they just view this uh, as like, how do people keep electing these folks? Well, the fact is the districts are redrawn every 10 years, that the districts are engineered in many cases to be partisan by their nature. And Arizona stands out as one of the rare states that has really emphasized competition and trying to create more competitive districts in the House of Representatives and in the state legislature. When you talk about where people live, that's kind of a, a more complicated question because in Congress, we have to play by the rules for eligibility that are really set forth for the country. And the only rule as it relates to Congress, as I understand it, is you have to live in the state that you represent when you are in Congress. So you don't have to live in your district. You really can even move into the state uh, before you are in office, but you have to live in the state. And so for whatever representative you want to talk about for Congress, they can live outside their district. Again, the lines are sort of redrawn every 10 years anyway. Somebody may be within their district today and after the next redistricting cycle, might be slightly outside their district. So the ability to represent areas and neighborhoods and such, that's something that I think is up to voters ultimately to, to give it the weight that they think it deserves. Arizona's legislature, the rules for that are a little different. The state is able to fully set its own rules on that and members of the legislature do need to live within their districts. That, however, has a big caveat. Their functional reality is there are people who have mailing addresses and toe-touch presences at certain residences, but really effectively don't live there. Oftentimes, they live functionally in Maricopa County, in the Phoenix area, even though they represent some far-flung corner of Arizona. That is not a new game. That has been the case for decades, and I suspect we're not going to see an end to that anytime soon. So in both cases, I would say ultimately... It's in the hands of voters that if they don't like this, there's something they could do about it. It's up to them to make it happen. Yeah, I would add to, uh, especially on the legislative front, there have been court challenges, you know, where people have said, 
hey, this representative so-and-so does not live in their district. And um, the courts have always said, basically, your home is where you think it is. So uh, nobody has ever, that I'm aware of has ever been kicked out of the legislature uh, by a court for not living in their district. Especially if they have a mailing address there. I imagine it's very hard to prove that someone does not live there. Yeah, and, and I think what Mary Jo said is, is actually kind of an important point because we deal with this not just in representation, but in voting as well. There's always been uh, questions around how do we handle, for example, college students? Or where do we count population for census purposes for people who are, say, inmates and who are incarcerated in one part of a state but consider their residence somewhere else? How do we count these folks? There is also, in census purposes, there's questions of what do you do with, for example, Mormons who may be out on a mission outside America, but they need to be counted somewhere in America even if they weren't there during the census period. So residents, how to count people, how to have them represent people. It's always been a thorny subject. Again, these are not new subjects. These are things that come up from time to time, usually when somebody has really kind of stepped what feels like whatever we imagine the line to be. Because this has been going on for so long, the second half of Dan's question was if it would impact elections. It sort of seems like this is routine, but it is in the hands of the voters. Do you think that it will make a difference in 24? You know, this is part of what politics is all about, right? You are free to make whatever arguments you want that so-and-so doesn't live in the district or doesn't really represent us. We've already seen that in many ways in the Arizona Senate race. Uh, already, we are hearing people who are not fans of Senator Kirsten Cinema saying she doesn't represent us. It's not really a residency question. It is are you really representing your constituents? And we'll see if that kind of argument sticks against her. In House races, it's the kind of thing that somebody is free to raise that if they want. But there's the question of, is the alternative something that is more palatable? One of the examples that kind of leaps to my mind is former Congresswoman Ann Kirkpatrick, who in 2014 ran effectively against Jonathan Payton, a Republican, arguing that her district at the time, which it spanned northeastern Arizona, that he was from Tucson and that he really couldn't represent that district because he doesn't understand that district, which she meant to include things like Native American tribe lands and just these small towns all over northeastern Arizona that have varying uh, interests from mining to tourism and that he was just not the appropriate person because he was from Tucson. Interestingly, she did end up winning that election by a whisker, mostly because of the support she received from tribal voters and also a very helpful third-party candidate who siphoned off a few votes that might otherwise have gone to Peyton. Then Four years later, Ann Kirkpatrick ran for Congress again, and it was in Tucson. Now she's the newcomer who says that she went to school in Tucson and she has family down there. She's very familiar with Tucson, and she beat a crowded Democratic field for the nomination and then was able to win in a relatively easy fashion for that congressional seat at that time and held it for a couple terms. So it was really in the hands of voters. These things were raised as issues 
voters decided it on other grounds, it looks like. All right. So last question here. We were submitted a lot, but we only chose five for this episode. Um, A listener wanted an explanation on what Arizona statute, and correct me if I'm saying this incorrectly, but 133620, is that how you break it down? Someone wanted to know more about what that was. Some people might know it better as the mandatory abuse reporting law, but what exactly does that mean and what are the parameters of that, Mary Jo? Wonderful. We're going to get into some of the details of of legislation. This is all designed to protect kids. It's a criminal statute, and it says that people have an obligation to report to authorities if they see signs of abuse or neglect. And I will note that neglect is a very, very fluid term. You should report that in the interest of protecting the child. Um, The Department of Child Safety has a hotline set up where people can report anonymously, um, and those tips are followed up on. If uh, sometimes cases are reported to the police, the law also defines who are mandatory reporters, folks who have got to do this or else they face criminal penalties. And that includes teachers, school personnel, psychologists, medical personnel. The list is rather extensive. Parents, counselors, grandparents, and anybody who's in charge of taking care of a child. If one of these mandatory reporters fails to report, they, again, can face some criminal charges. It's worth noting that there are a few exceptions and um, not without controversy, but our law allows an exception for any clergy member who hears of this kind of information in a confessional setting. That has been a topic um, that's been really pulled apart a lot in a ongoing case down in uh, Bisbee regarding um, horrific instances of child abuse. It led to some efforts to amend our state laws to require clergy to report this, but uh, the the legislation never got out of the state legislature. There's also an exception for attorney-client privilege um, in these cases. And has this happened? Yeah. In 2017, there was a vice principal and a counselor at a Tucson elementary school who were charged with failure to report of inappropriate activities between two kids at the school. So, There are some penalties to make people take this seriously. If you are found guilty of failing to report and you're a mandatory reporter, you could face a Class 6 felony, which has penalties and maybe six years in prison, although that kind of uh, felony is usually downgraded to a misdemeanor, a Class 1 misdemeanor, which has mostly fines and up to six months in jail. Is there any consequence for maybe a false report? I'm thinking of extremes, but like really messy divorces or like personal attacks, things like that. If you falsely report child abuse because you're a mandatory reporter, is there any sort of consequence in that or are people just not doing that? Oh, I'm I'm sure there are lots of false reports. I um, I get phone calls about that, you know, periodically. But there's a hesitance to punish that because the authorities want the information and they say, look, we'll check it out. And there is a universe of people out there who do not trust the Department of Child Safety to vet these things properly. But the argument is that these are professionals, they're trained, they have investigators, they'll go out. And if if something's false, then nothing happens, except maybe a little bit of trauma to the family of of being questioned. But I'm not aware of penalties on that, but I could be wrong. I will add that this statute does get looked at every so often by lawmakers, and somewhat recently, 
they added a requirement that extended to newborns. So any evidence that a child has been born exposed to alcohol or drugs, that is a, a requirement that you must report. In this case, it would be to the Department of Child Safety. Well, I thought these were great questions. Some topics we've touched on, like the redistricting one, but some uh, more specific angles, I guess, at some of these questions that we've looked at um, before. We love hearing from you, and we'd really like to do this again. So reach out to us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com or give us a call at 602-444-0804 and let us know what you'd like us to cover. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. And to make sure you never miss an episode, follow The Gaggle on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter and threads at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. And you can find me on Twitter and threads at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. The editor and producer of today's episode as well as the person asking us these questions, is Amanda Luberto. You can follow her at Amanda Luberto. That's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Next week, we're joined by Yana Kunichov to dive deeper into education and voucher expansion here in Arizona. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.